the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. Hey, Jeremy, how are you today? Good, man. Yeah, it's been a busy week. We... Uh, Apparently, it's the end of the uh, heat wave here in Seattle this week, so everyone's being crazy and taking time off to enjoy the, the sun while it still lasts. Yeah, right. We're already mid-August, which is kind of shameful when you think the summer is mostly over. Uh, I'm trying to think about it too much, but um, no, I've uh, started the house renovation as well, so we're uh, nomads now, moving around family and friends' houses to stay until... Um, we can move back in downstairs in our uh, in our home, which is going to be interesting. Yes, owning a home is always interesting. That's exactly right. So, uh, what kind of stuff have you seen out in the uh, internet's these uh, this week? You had the community um, call, right? Which I, I could, didn't get a chance to sit in on, but that went this week, right? Yeah, that that proved interesting. I think I invented some more curse words when Skype for Business. And didn't inform me that my microphone for some reason got disabled and I talked to myself for 15 minutes and no one thought to text me that something was wrong. And then when I went to introduce the first presenter, um, I realized that my Skype wasn't actually working and I talked to myself for 15 minutes. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a shame. Yeah. The, the, the lesson learned is I think for anything like that, you need to be on two screens. And I was kind of on my laptop in my backyard because the house was totally empty and my office was packed up and it was eight in the morning and I didn't want to be at work that early. But um, from now on, I think I need to go in and plug in so I've got two screens so I can see those uh, things things coming through, I guess. Or someone on backup who can text you when it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But um, yeah, we're, we're growing that call. It had, uh, I think it was like 150, 160 people on it. Um, so yeah, slowly but surely we're getting more and more interest on the on the graph, which is great. Yeah, the, the topic looked interesting to me, so it's on my list to try to catch that screencast over the weekend, so if all goes well. Yeah, the, um, the whole notifications and um, kind of alerts and devices aspect of the graph pertaining to Windows 10 is awesome, and I just, on my work computer, got pushed onto April update. I'm not on Windows Insider because I'm, just so reliant on this machine. Uh, um, I have it uh, on my home machine. And um, I've been finding Timeline super useful, um, especially with all my browser history where I, I actually use Edge on my iPhone and being able to see that in the timeline, just by clicking that little icon next to the search box in the start bar and seeing all the sites I've been visiting and what I've been doing across all my office apps is insanely useful yeah i like that i like that as well um especially this last week on a, on a new project the documents back and forth it's like which one was i in again so it's really kind of i do find it helpful as well it's really pretty neat and um and then so those guys have done a really good job and then jason johnston who's in our team he's one of my peers um he built the approval bot for the build demo which was like a microsoft bot framework microsoft graph azure scenario and he just went a lot deeper in that demo than um what yina was able to do in a build session where she kind of introduced it so that was really good as well yeah, excellent excellent and then um in the news i guess the if if you haven't already seen this there's a microsoft azure ebook 
um, which kind of, in a simple sentence, translates the confusing of having nearly 100 services in Azure into when you would use what when. Um, it was actually an initiative that started when I was in the Azure marketing team in Nicole Hurstfish's org. And um, they outsourced that to a vendor to write and it got really popular. And they've just done an August update to it to kind of um, to improve that even more. So definitely go check that out. Yeah, I saw that uh, blurb and I thought I certainly have to find time to read this. But just like Azure, the book is massive. So it's going to be <laughs> <laughs> maybe my next flight. So, well, I noticed they've done it in a EPUB and Mobi format. So that you can oh, I didn't throw it notice to that. You, yeah, yeah. So you can throw it to your Kindle or stuff to read it, and actually they even have a screenshot of what looks like some kind of it's not a Kindle, it's something else, but the tablet of your choice to sit so, there yeah. and read it at your leisure. Excellent, excellent. Um, you know, I found another interesting news item. You know, we talked a couple of shows ago about uh, the site scripts and site designs that we had a community contribution on. Well, there's a, an update to that this summer, adding some new actions like adding principle to a group. In other words, put uh, when you provision a site, you can put users into the site as well. And and there's some community samples uh, out on GitHub. They have some templates, including uh, join a hub site and um, and update the uh, the navigation uh, as, as you do that. So the site scripts and site designs are, are getting some improvements. And they actually tease about Ignite, uh, some coming up there as well. So for those people who are looking to provision uh, automatically, uh, it's getting more and more love, which is pretty cool. And I, I love the the fact that they have stuff in GitHub to, to go hit. So uh, the, the SharePoint community, I'm sure, will leap in and, and do its usual great job of, of covering everything you could ever imagine. Yeah, I'm really trying to emulate the work that Vaser and his team have done there um, with the graph community as well. They've really set the bar. There's a... I think Vaser shares some of it publicly, but there's an internal... SharePoint news page that he has where he shares Power BI charts of like the engagement and it's just phenomenal kind of the growth of that community and uh, the growth of SPFX as a framework um, compared to the more traditional models in SharePoint so you know we're hoping to show the same difference between developers using our legacy APIs and direct endpoints and then people using the Microsoft Graph which is uh, you know one of the mandates that we have is to kind of get people over to it. Interestingly, on the provisioning side, um, we've been looking at kind of common areas on the graph of where there's issues. And one of the big ones that we keep seeing is people using the group's creation API calls and actually having it so that um, when you go in, the, the expectation is if I create a group that I should be able to get to the SharePoint site straight away or I should be able to get to the planner plan straight away. Um, but there's a few things that unless you set properly, um, it will take a, a UI navigation to the URL for it to start kicking off the provisioning of those particular parts of the group. And one of the things we found out internally from me poking around at various different PMs, which was quite amazing. It was about 50 people on the thread by the end of it to, by the time we got the answer. And we're going to get this in the documentation as well is that when you do a group creation, there's an owners and a members OData collection that if you don't populate it, the SharePoint site won't get created because SharePoint to do its provisioning of its site needs an owner. Otherwise, it's deemed as an anonymous create, which fails. And so you do need to put the OData owners object in when you do the group creation. And then uh, another thread came up that to get a plan, 
you need a member. It's not enough to just define an owner of your group. You actually need a member of a group as well for the planet thing to work. So um, we're going to get all this documented to kind of reduce this level of confusion. But it's really good having a team internally now that are kind of monitoring how often these questions are coming up and kind of going, okay, this is a hot area. Let's go fix the documentation. So that's that's excellent. Yeah, the, the, I, I didn't know any of that. So that's fantastic to hear. And, you know, and I did hear comments when I was in Redmond at the event uh, a couple of weeks back about how people, people were complaining that creating teams or, or groups, everyone became a SharePoint site owner. So I wonder if maybe that member payload wasn't exposed properly that or people didn't see it so they weren't filling in yeah. members so interestingly it is documented as part of the underlying resource object but it wasn't in any of the examples so typically what we're finding is people are grabbing the example code snippet and just using that um so we need to get better at making sure our examples include like the bare minimum and, and that really needs to be the bare minimum so that it does actually create everything properly yeah. i mean it still eventually does it but it just means when you hit the sharepoint url you get the provisioning your site kind of please wait stuff right right and the last thing on that note uh, some feedback i've heard repeatedly and i know uh your folks are looking at it is that when i get the group object get, i want urls to let me get to all the various resources so i know the site one is in there now but things like onedrive and planner and all the other related resources would be helpful just to get a url so if i'm building a ui i can link my users off so that, that'll be interesting to get that stuff coming out as well yeah, and interestingly, um, I met with a guy this week. He's a principal PM, um, so he's the same level as uh, a Yina or a, I don't I can't remember on the SharePoint side who the principals are. It's like Darren Spector, for instance, are principals. Um, and his dedicated role now is looking at how enterprise devs and ISVs are using groups. And he used the word Microsoft 365 groups, not Office 365 groups. And I think that's just a, something you're going to see as we get closer to Ignite is that that'll just kind of be more and more heavily used. And so he's looking for like, what are the blockers? What are the pain points? Why are people not using it? What's frustrating them? And so I've introduced him to a bunch of ISVs that I know are working hard with groups. Um, so if you're listening to this and you are using groups and you do have some frustrations, just reach out to me, um, just jthake at microsoft.com and I'll introduce you to the, the PM internally that's kind of looking for this feedback. Well, that's great, great stuff. So about the community, have you uh, come across anything interesting in the community news? Well, there's one person that I think I've always said since God, 2005 or something, that if you follow this one blog, you have to follow this person, which is Chris O'Brien. And um, every time I see him, you know, we always have these really great chats. So he's just an awesome guy from England. And um, it's funny now, now having a kid, uh, talking to him about me having a daughter is kind of you know getting even more worldly advice from me as a as a, a father of two uh, of twins. I don't know if you say two twins, two sons, um, which blows my mind. As a father of one daughter, thinking about having twins is, I mean, the guy needs a medal. Um, but on more on point, his blog is awesome, and he uh, wrote a community uh, blog about uh, using custom Azure functions in Flow. Uh, to call the graph is the example he used. And um, as per user with Chris, he goes into a lot of detail with screenshots and code snippets and so forth. It's really good. 
Yeah, uh, Chris has always got great content, and and another longtime SharePoint guy with great content is always Waldeck Masticars. And I found uh, three blog posts from Waldeck talking about connectors and flow as well. And he touches on all types of things, such as uh, DLP and policies that you can do to help keep your data secure. And and as well, he's got some opinions about what fl- connectors could do more. Uh, all great feedback that Waldeck put together in his typical style. So that it's nice to see uh, flow and connectors getting more and more attention because I think it's a it's a great enabling technology. And that fits in great with our guest this week too, who talked a little bit about that. Yeah, um, we got Todd on. Um, we tried to get him at the, M- uh, not the MVP summit, the one of the event, oh, the, the biz app summit that he was at. But um, he was so busy and we ended up catching up with him, but we talked too much. Well, well, we yeah. To the show. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, so uh, when people listen to this, you know, we generally do this intro uh, a day or two after the interview, but you don't hear all that conversation. Thanks to all the hard work that Jeremy does to mix it together. But Todd is one guy we probably could have talked straight for 36 hours <laughs> because <laughs> it's always fascinating and always great to, to visit with, with Todd. So, Well, the funny thing with Todd is um, I have allergies as well. Well, and I would consider, and you probably hear it in my voice this morning, that I, it's it's a bad day, and and Todd gets it very severe, and he takes um, <laughs> pretty much every known allergy pill in the market. He takes every morning, and so his energy levels are off the charts. So <laughs> when you talk to him, he, he just doesn't have an off switch, and he's extremely intelligent. And as I say, he's another one that I would have in my top five alongside Waldeck and Chris of people that you should be following their blogs to learn about them and. Uh, He's always been a great person to share stuff. And um, this is an excellent show. If you're doing anything uh, with the enterprise where you're building custom connectors, he kind of really showcases what he learned uh, when he had a paid kind of vendor contract to go build these templates for the Power Apps Gallery, for the Power Apps team. So it's a great sharing lesson. So enjoy the show. Yes, it's wonderful. And uh, always great to, to catch up with you, Jeremy. And I think that, uh, you know, I should say we have a couple of things scheduled coming up, uh, you know, little tidbits of what might be coming at Ignite. And, and obviously uh, at Ignite itself, we really haven't talked much that you and I will both be at Ignite and uh, certainly would love to connect with the listeners there. If, you, if you're going to be there, reach out. Yeah, totally. I'm, I'm still, we need to talk offline about some swag for this too. I'm not sure anyone's want to going to want a goofy photo of me and you like we use for our album art, but um, we could probably come up with something I'm sure. And um, I, um, I talked to Mark Stafford and uh, Ina Arenas who are both principals on the engineering side of the graph. And, um, you know, I said we should get them on the show. So we'll do that when we're Ignite as well, which will be exciting. That always, always great to talk to the visionaries at the behind the team there. That'd be great. Right. I mean, between those two and Dan Kershaw, they've been involved in the graph since it's basically started on a whiteboard. So there's not much uh, better than that for, for that kind of discussion around what the API strategies at Microsoft moving forward. Yeah, that sounds great. So looking forward to it. And uh, again, thanks for all the work you do in getting us to, uh, out every week. And for all you oh. folks listening, we'd love to hear your uh, your thoughts and reviews on iTunes. Those are always appreciated as well. And Twitter, we'll- Twitter, we'll do it. retweet us on Twitter as well. Yes, and, um, exactly. Yeah, this, it's been great having you on as a co-host, dude. So let's, um, let's keep rocking these out every week. And uh, I'm looking forward to having a pint with you when we get to um, Orlando. Sounds great. Cheers, buddy. Bye. So we're on Skype for Business this morning with uh, Todd Beginsky. How are you, mate? I'm good. Thanks for having me, guys. 
uh, we uh, I just looked back at the the list of episodes we've done, and in episode eighty seven, we had you on the show to talk about the property manager uh, hero demo that we we built out as when I was at Microsoft in marketing for Ignite twenty fifteen. So we're going back a few here. Uh, which was talking about how um, how you can use the office, what was then the Office 365 APIs with an iOS sample, a Cordova sample, an Android sample, and I think even a Xamarin sample mm-hmm. to show you what you could do with the graph with mail, calendar, and contacts. So I think the takeaway from here is is that this stuff's been around for a while. Obviously, it's had a rename to Microsoft Graph, but uh, these APIs have been there for a bit, and it's nice to see those hero demos still kind of surviving that for sure. Yeah, definitely. You know, I even had a potential client just a couple months ago who saw that and then came to us and talked to us about it. And they had stood it up in their own environment and they wanted to see if they could actually make a product out of it. Wow. Okay. How have you been, Paul? How's your week been? My week's been pretty well. Uh, After the visit last week on campus, it's kind of nice to just be sitting around and getting a settled in my own office here so it's been good how about yourself good i've just realized that we have three different hockey teams represented in this podcast so it's worth bringing that up well we have one that's won three championships in the last 10 years and then two other guys too soon paul too soon (laughs) and and then we have the arch rivals between jeremy's team and mine we've we've already agreed that we're going to fly up to uh new york and see the jersey devils play the rangers when it finally happens, we'd have to have have that happen next season for sure. Yeah, we need to go do one at MSG and one in New Jersey. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Mm-hmm. So, um, how will people know you, Todd? What, how long have you been on this circuit? Because I I remember meeting you SPC09 after reading your blog for forever long and having a good chat to you there. But what what have you been up to more recently? Yeah. So yeah, it's been a long time. Been in the office and SharePoint and Azure land. I think going back to 03 actually is when I first started working with it. Uh, lately, been doing a lot of work with Azure and Power Apps and integrating with those two things with Office 365. And a lot of work on helping people take existing on-premises applications they have and multitudes of different technologies and moving them into the Azure cloud. Are you doing much SharePoint stuff now? Because that's really where you cut your teeth in the Microsoft space, right? Yeah, still doing SharePoint things. Uh, There's been a lot more people uh, wanting to get the Azure piece involved with it lately too, or the Power App piece. But we just completed a uh, branding project as well as a build out for a college on a SharePoint site. Um, one case, the uh, branding project was in Azure Government, and that was interesting to work with. A couple things a little bit different because the version, you know, is a little bit behind commercial there. And then um, the on premises SharePoint is what we helped the college out with. I want to uh, talk a little bit further about the Power Apps and Azure bit that you referenced, right? So uh, obviously, lots of people see Power Apps and say, I can get started pretty easily, which is Mm -hmm. always great. 
but there's a lot of opportunity for developers to bring some value. Can you, uh, what's your thoughts on how those play together and where you see people getting started in that space? Yeah, I really like Power Apps. Um, one of the main reasons I just like it is, uh, you know how when you work on anything, it's nice to get instant gratification on what you're working on and, and see a result real quick. Well, Power Apps will certainly give that to you. Um, the other thing that we really like about Power Apps is you can embed them across the board in Office 365, whether that be in a SharePoint site or in Team or Power BI report, or just using it on your mobile device and in the browser. So there's a lot of flexibility when you develop these things that they'll work in all kinds of places. And what I've been seeing a lot of is companies who say, I've got this process and it's a pretty simple process, but I just need to get a better user interface for this. And a lot of times they hear about Power Apps and say, that's a real quick way for me to build a user interface real quick into something and go ahead and establish a project that they can knock out real quick to make that possible. So, so do you feel like the, the, customers now are starting to already be aware of this. This is not something you're taking to the customer. This is something that they're coming to you asking for. That's a good question. I think it's 50-50. I think for the people who are kind of up, if you will, on what's going on in the Microsoft world right now, a lot of those people who keep up the times know what the power apps are, even if they don't have a lot of experience with them. Um, but there are folks who've never heard of them before. And so being able to show them example power apps, like the, the ones we built that are in the uh, web.powerapps.com, those sample templates, those are really good ways to just quickly spin up a demo and show somebody, hey, here's what a power app looks like, and here's some examples of what you can use it to do and the type of data you can connect to. So I know I've brought this all up on other shows, and it probably sounds like Jeremy's an old record, but the whole... You know, part of my con consulting years was working with InfoPath, which I just hated because there was just this big barrier wall as soon as you got a certain way down what you were actually trying to build where there was no way over the wall. And so you basically had to knock the wall down and just build it all from scratch in ASP.NET at the time. Um, what's the experience of Power Apps? Is there a, a way that you can kind of just keep building on top rather than kind of realizing you've hit this wall and be like, ah, oh, this isn't the right way. And this is the customer needs X, Y, and Z UI tweaks that can't be done with Power Apps. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the UI, I remember what you're talking about with InfoPath. Um, I can even remember presenting a session back at that SharePoint conference you talked about on InfoPath and workflow and some people asking questions about some of those limitations. Uh, but with a Power App, you're really not limited on what you can pull off in the user interface. Um, the out-of-the-box control suite's really nice. The way that UIs have evolved since InfoPath was around and the more modern experience, if you will, or I like to also think about that is how do you lay things out in a mobile app? Uh, those user interfaces are very easily built with Power Apps. And the nice part is if there are controls that you don't have in Power Apps out of the box, you always have the HTML control. And so you can take those controls and build whatever type of user interface you like. 
one thing that always came up, and I remember back in helping out in InfoPath days, it would be I have some type of logic that I can't necessarily do out of the box. I can't just do a, a simple if statement or some validation function. And so what approaches do you see people using for power apps these days if I need to do some processing? It's not just getting data, but doing some something else. What do you push people towards? I gotcha. So, or do you mean validation, not like on the client and the form, but yeah, more yeah, exactly. send this information yeah. to the back end and make sure it's good before you submit it? Stuff like that, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. We're, 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 how do you feel in that gap if someone wants to do something that's just not plain, painfully obvious in the UI? Uh, right now, that all comes down to having a connector to get you to the system where you need to send that data to get it validated or processed or transformed, calculated, whatever the case may be. And do you find that difficult to do or, or, or well, I, I would imagine you know, those of us who've been around for a while don't find it difficult, but what about customers? Are they able to do this? Do you see end user adoption to that? I do. I, I think it's a relatively new technology still, though, right? So I don't think there are a ton of people out there who are building their own custom connectors yet. Um, but I have met a couple, including when I was up in Seattle at the Business Applications Summit a couple weeks ago. Um, I hung out in the Power Apps booth a couple afternoons and helped answer questions for people. And there were a handful of people who came in and said, hey, I built a custom connector and I'm wondering if I can do this or that with it. And, and those uh, the templates you mentioned, like the meeting template that you can get in Power Apps from that gallery, you used custom connectors for that, didn't you? We did originally, but there are no custom connectors in them right now. So there were a couple of use cases across the apps. I'd say maybe half a dozen um, across the 12 apps we built where the existing connectors did not give us the API we needed to do something with Office. So in those scenarios, that's, that's when we learned how to build custom connectors, actually. And so what we did is we built the custom connectors into the Graph API to get us the ability to implement that requirement. And then after we did that, we gave those custom connectors back to the connectors team, and they actually baked them into the production connectors. So there's about six operations in those connectors today that weren't there before as a result of that project. Well, that's really neat. And yeah. so, I mean, it's a podcast, so there's no hand waving or whiteboarding here. But what are the what are the steps to building uh, one of those connectors? And can you like use one of the real examples from one of the templates to kind of so that people kind of visually understand it? Yeah, sure. So the first the the steps that you'll go through at, at a high level is you define the general metadata of the connector, like its name, its description, and the endpoint uh, base URL that you're going to connect to. Uh, that could be like api.contoso.com, for example. And after you do that, then you have to figure out which type of authentication your connector needs. So you have options of no authentication, basic authentication, API key, or OAuth2. So across the board, when you have those four options there, it pretty much allows you to authenticate to most types of systems nowadays. After you do that, that's when you get into defining the actual actions that you can take 
on that connector. So actions is another way, you know, like we always call it with .NET programming methods, essentially. And so you define your actions and say, I'm going to invoke this method. Here's the parameters I'm going to send in. Here's the payload I'm expecting to get back. And after you define all your actions, then you just go test it out. Now, when you're defining your actions, there's a couple ways to go about it. There's one way to go through the wizard and the, uh, the Power Apps Online Editor in the custom connector area. And there you can actually define the entire action inside of the web page and write all of the, the, uh, the swagger code that defines that metadata. That's the painful way to do it. Um, I like to use Postman or another tool that will allow me to export a Swagger file, and then all I have to do is import it into my connector, and the connector reads the Swagger file and it builds up all my actions for me. So I want to interject here, right? So I think there's new names for a bunch of this stuff, right? So Swagger files now are the open API definition, right? And yep. so uh, uh, that's helpful. And, and what I ran into in the past was a C-sharp library or NuGet package called Swashbuckle, which is again means nothing when in the in the context here, but the swashbuckle library would do reflection over your your web methods as we used to call them back in the day, right? And, and actually give you that file. So uh, if you're if you are a C sharp developer or or using Visual Studio, you don't have to start from scratch on that, which I find incredibly helpful. But now the uh, a couple of things on, on the authentication piece, right? And, and what I hear people are concerned about is if a developer goes in and he's doing some type of authentication, then how do my end users use this connector? Are, am I using the developer's credentials or, or how do I approach that? That's going to depend how you set your authentication up. If you set it up for no authentication, there's no credentials. Um, but when you set it up for the other types of authentication methods, for example, if you're using the OAuth 2, then the credentials of the currently logged in user using your Power App or Flow that invokes the connector, their credentials will be the ones used automatically at runtime. So and the, quite frankly, I love that. I think that's incredible that all I have to do is create it and I don't have to write a bunch of code to make sure I've got user context. So with that in mind, though, that means that the if Power Apps, assuming you know, in most scenarios, it's going to be their, their organizational account that they're logged into. So their mm -hmm. Office 365, their Azure AD user account. So the API that you're calling needs to understand that auth token, essentially. Yep. It does. And that's another really cool thing about being able to build a custom connector. Because if, if you have a need to take that user's credential and maybe put it through some kind of SSO system to sign into a different system that doesn't use Azure Active Directory, you could do that under the hood in your service and the user wouldn't even have to know it was happening. Right, so it wouldn't have to go and prompt them for a bunch of different, like if I was connecting through to Trello or whatever, it wouldn't have to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so we can't copy replace on audio, but that's not a credential that's being passed. It's a token that represents the current user. So there's a key distinction there for those who are worried about credentials being floating around, but it's a token representing them, right? Yeah, good point. <laughs> yeah, you're like the auth teacher like Nazi hand ruler slapping. <laughs> well, 
Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> it's all good. We, we'll put you in the same bucket as records managers. I we, suppose. We just need to buy you a brown cardigan and sandals and white socks. Nope, nope, nope. Just buy me a margarita. It's all good. <laughs> yeah. Paul and I come from the same boat right there. Um, and so with the auth done, so with those samples in the gallery you use in the graph, where did you get the open API description from from the graph were you generating that yourself or oh you mean when we created the new operations for the connectors yeah yeah so to create that what we did is we used postman to invoke the graph api and then we exported the open api slash swagger file from postman and then imported it into the custom connector Right, okay. Because that's something that Daryl Miller, who's a peer on my team, we both report into Yina Arenas, um, he's working not only on the SDKs, but on the OpenAPI 3 spec uh, for the graph, which is in beta right now. Um, but interestingly, um, and it's definitely something you should be following on Twitter if you're not already, he's on the OpenAPI Foundation, which is part of the Linux Foundation. So mm-hmm. in defining the actual spec for OpenAPI, um, which is really cool. And um, it's definitely one of those things where you have discussions with him about what they're doing in that space. And it's pretty incredible to see like different government agencies that are complying with this new OpenAPI fra- framework. And, and so it's definitely something that, you know, as you say, between the different auth choices you have with these connectors and the fact that all you need is an open API spec and you can connect it in power apps means that in most cases this is pretty straightforward to do. It certainly is. Isn't it refreshing to see how people work together with many different agencies nowadays to develop these specs instead of one company putting somewhere out, putting something out and then another company puts its best attempt out and then right. as a developer in the past you're working with all these different specs going holy cow but nowadays people seem to be way more forward thinking about this yeah um i i agree that's pretty nice i wish the adaptive cards group would get more external support but that's a that's a different show um <laughs> one other one other, you know we talked at, at the very beginning about how um you know developers and using uh power apps as opposed to the end users and, and another scenario that i came across that i'd like your thoughts on uh, i was watching someone teach uh, power apps and they wanted to show a user's name and email address and on a form and so they used the built-in connector to get my profile, I think is what it's called. Mm-hmm. And then they they put it the name field and did a lookup to the profile for the name. And then they put the address field and they put a lookup to the profile for the address name. And it occurred to me that, you know, if we're using like React, we'd say elevate state to something. So I, I, I obviously wanted to, to share that information with the instructor later afterwards. But do you run across scenarios like that where you think just because you've done code yourself that you can see improvements and how how power apps could be done or, or performance wise or, or uh, simple development wise? Oh yeah, certainly. I think having a development background when you build power apps is tremendously valuable. Um, it, you, it gets you used to that mindset of thinking more about performance and caching and how many round trips you're making to a server and the size of the data you pull down and 
Maybe you have an API you can't change, and it's sending you back 60 columns of data, but you only need six of them in your Power App. Techniques to understand how to say, okay, I, I just downloaded all these. I don't need to download them all again in the course of the user using the app. I'm going to whittle this down to the six columns I have and toss out the collection that had all 60 in it. Just little techniques like that that can help you tweak your performance of the app. Um, I, I think having that developer background and mindset really lends well to setting you up so you understand how to think about those things before you find out that your power app's not performing well. Yeah, I think like the InfoPath, SharePoint, have all had examples where power users can get things done, but then as a developer, when you look at it, you know, you see how they're naming the columns in their SharePoint list that they're storing data in. And I'm assuming it's the same problems you see when people are doing naming inside of Power Apps fields as well, where it makes sense to them when they're building it. But I bet if they looked at it three months later, they probably wouldn't understand what the the field names were. And it's because they're not in this all day that they don't realize that kind of, you know, standardized naming is really useful um, from a consistency perspective. But also if you're handing over to the next poor schmuck in the business that has to take over that business process when you get promoted for your awesome work. Um, and so that, is there any people out there that you know of that are kind of that kind of guidance around those things, like tips and trips at that level? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Um, when we were building the power app sample templates, we had some coding guidelines that the power apps team shared with us. And that was Geez, that project started nine, 10 months ago. So, you know, Power Apps had just been in the wild, what, six months or so, if I remember right, yeah. at that time. Uh, so the the amount of um, understanding of best practices, if you will, for coding guidelines was not really uh, kind of out there and known in the wild. And so Microsoft shared that information with us and we took it one step further with everybody on the team having a lot of meetings to say, Hey, what about this? What about that? And we ended up having the documents in a couple different places. So I captured it all and I stuck it onto my blog. So there's a blog post on there. I, I think it's called power apps coding guidelines or tips and tricks. And it talks about what you said, Jeremy, about naming things appropriately. There's also some cool techniques we demonstrate in there about not how to just hand it off to the next developer, but how can you hand it off well for deployment? Like if you think about take a power app from one environment to another, well, maybe you need settings to change just like you would a web app, for example, as you talk to one server or another in, in your uh, environment stack. And we have recommendations and things that we implemented in the Power Apps that allow you to hand those Power Apps off and have kind of a web config app setting type capability where you can set name value pairs, if you will, for the settings as you go from environment to environment. And so there's a few different things in there about that as well. And Maddie on the Power Apps team also has two different uh, blog posts. Uh, that I really consider must read about performance and power apps and just um, how to go about architecting them. And so I can share those links with you and you can send them out with the podcast. Perfect. Yeah, that 
that blog post of yours, I I, I was I pass it out every time I, I get asked about Power Apps. But uh, a few weeks back, I was actually working quite heavily in a Power Apps project, and and the customer brought that to me, and I, so I said, I was like, okay, excellent. They've they've done their research, so it was kind of gratifying to see. And I'm I'm sure you as an author like to know people are getting a lot of use out of that. So it's it's been well received and and terrific stuff. So thanks for doing all that. Oh, you're welcome. That's great to hear. I keep it updated, too, because, you know, you learn new things all the time. So I think I've done one or two updates to that post already to add some more information or link in more things to kind of make it a one-stop shop is my goal. We use it internally, too. You know, that that's kind of our checklist to say when we develop a power-up, it needs to be like this. So, you know, you mentioned about uh, going through environments and a scenario came up in my past that the a user had had extended a SharePoint form using a Power App in the development site collection, and then wanted to port that to production. And as well, IT got involved and wanted to make sure it was in staging and pre-production and and so on and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see an easy way around that. Have you got any thoughts about how to do that with a SharePoint customization? Right now. There really is no easy way to do it, but I know they're working on it so that they do want to make that. And I don't know what how that will manifest in terms of a user experience, but I do know that they want to make them portable. So you can say, I've got this Power App attached to this list and it's used for you know my list forms and I want to be able to move it over to another site collection or another list. So that's something that they're looking into, but right now it's not available. And I tried and tried for like three long nights after work when my son went to bed. I tried to figure out how to hack it myself and just couldn't figure out how it could be done, (laughs) even in an unsupported way. So they've successfully replicated the SharePoint designer problems. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's, the um, only thing I didn't use was .NET, compi- uh, .NET Reflector to decompile anything. It, it kind of reminded me of how we used to go about things in the old SharePoint days. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. The uh, That's Ch- Chax now, right, in the PM team that looks after the SharePoint Power Apps kind of bridge within those two engineering teams? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that Chax is in charge of that. I'll have to go chat to him about that one. So... Um, and this one, I'm sure it's going to be controversial, but I think it's good for everyone to hear. Have you had any scenarios so far, or can you see any scenarios where perhaps this wouldn't be a good fit? Hmm. Good question. Because you can dev from scratch. I've seen you dev from scratch and build mm-hmm. UIs directly in Angular and directly as native apps on phones. So uh, what's the tipping point for you? Like, it, there, there definitely must be. Um, ha- have you seen that already with customers where you've had those discussions where you've gone in going, okay, perhaps is going to be a solution. And then after they give you a few requirements, you're like, uh, actually, no, that's not going to work. I haven't run into that with a customer yet, um, but I can think of a couple ways where I know, for example, developing in the SharePoint framework is going to be what you have to do instead of a power app. So any of the framework, SharePoint framework extensions, for example, you, you're not going to be able to use Power App to do those types of things. Um, but when it comes to a web part um, or building like a web application, if you will, I think if you have a extremely complex web application with 
tons of different layers of menus and screens and a lot of things like that, that it, it's a little easier to develop those very complex things in a web app than it is a power app. Um, because you have more different control suites and components you can pick from to help you implement those things and save time building them. And a lot of times when you have those more complex applications, you run into scenarios where you need to be able to debug it a little bit more deeply than you can debug things in a power app. So those are good scenarios for that. Um, if you're looking at a scenario though on the flip side where you have like a simple web part, let's say, and it's gonna pull data from two lists and mash that data up in one user interface and allow you to submit a form or something based on looking at that data and kick off a business process. Uh, Power Apps usually can do everything I've seen that SharePoint Framework can do there as well. Mm -hmm. the, the scenario that I've, I've seen in, along those lines is it's, it's quite easy to do a simple CRUD operation that's, you know, off we go, but if you have multiple screens involved, it can be, I don't want to say it's not possible in Power Apps, but I find many Power Apps users get stuck and not quite sure how to do that, or, or developers who don't know Power Apps start saying, well, I fall back on what I'm comfortable with, right? So mm -hmm. uh, uh, in my scenario, I'm not seeing any technical issues as more as a, you know, comfort level and, and knowledge level type of thing. So that's yeah, pretty- Yeah, I agree uh, with that. From a technical perspective, you can get a lot done in both. You know, one good example to what to what you were just talking to, Paul, is when you do pop-up in a power-up, like a light box pop-up on a screen, the way that you currently have to work through that in the power-ups editor is more difficult than it would be if you were writing that code um, in in like SharePoint Framework, for example, because if, if you're in the framework, you're going to have yourself a component that defines that pop-up, right? And you're looking at all the code within that pop-up in that one component. In Power Apps, the, the, a pop-up would be a component on the same page it's defined in Power App or screen, I should say. And so getting the user interface in the state you wanted in Power Apps and then taking it out of the preview mode in the editor and back to the edit mode, it can be a little cumbersome as you bounce back and forth be, you know, with the visibility of some things on top of the other and locating your controls. But as you mentioned, that's really not a technical limitation. It's more of a kind of how do you go about developing it and what is the tooling like right now. Yeah, that's all excellent stuff, and and I agree. The tool, although to be fair, the tooling has improved dramatically since I started just a few short months ago. The things have rolled out continuously, which is really pretty nice to see. Oh yeah, it sure has. A lot of the feedback we had from developing those um, twelve sample power apps uh, was we handed it off to the team, and many of the items they got into the backlog, and some of them they've already added to it. Have you seen the new app checker that they just put in a week or two ago? Is that the thing with the stethoscope in the upper right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I didn't I didn't know it was there until it started yelling at me with all kinds of, you know, flashy buttons. <laughs> like, what's this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably accessibility issues, I imagine. But the, that thing is really nice because it'll it, it goes through all of your code and, and highlights areas where you might not have it right 
And sometimes, you know, there are false positives, just like any any type of uh, code validation system. It'll say, hey, you know, you haven't done this. And you go look at that line of code and you're like, well, there's a good reason I didn't do that because that's how my user interface dictated this need to look, for example. I think I'm going to do a blog post or a little video on that and kind of walk people through what, how to evaluate those different messages the app checker comes back with and find out if you really need to take action or not. Yeah, they've, they've certainly been... Um kind of aggressive in releasing features and I know that I just had that business applications summit and I saw John Levesque um, post that the videos are now online for all of the sessions so um, that's a great way to go and learn about Power Apps and Flow and connectors and I, I assume your session's up as well Todd from that event they didn't record the theater sessions in there, but a colleague of mine, Manfred, was at the conference as well, and Manfred brought his camera in and recorded them. But it was kind of hard to get good audio in the theater session, yeah, so yeah. He, he recorded some of those and put them up. But I am doing two more sessions at the um, Ignite conference, and one of them is on how to do IoT visualization um, of Azure IoT with the Power App. And the other one is how to make a custom connector to the Graph API, like oh, we, nice. we talked about on the Graph community call. Yeah. So uh, those will both be done at Ignite, and my understanding is they're recording all the theater sessions there too. Yeah, they are, yeah, like they do at Build. Awesome. Well, look, we've come up for the half hour here, so a big thank you for sharing that today. That's uh, super useful, and I'm hoping it's inspiring a bunch of developers to uh, kind of roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty with Power Apps if they haven't done already. Um, how can people follow you? Where's your blog, your Twitter? Uh, my blog is Todd Baginski. That's T-O-D-D-B-A-G-I-N-S-K-I dot com. And my Twitter is Todd Baginski. Awesome. Well, uh, I guess we'll see you at Ignite. Was there anything else you wanted to wrap up with, Paul? No, but I, uh, again, uh, I think that'll be a great session at Ignite, uh, going deeper into what Todd showed at the community call, and uh, certainly worthwhile if you're there to find Todd and do it. And uh, I want to say thanks, Todd, for taking the time today. It's uh, always a pleasure to chat, and this is great stuff. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm looking forward to seeing you both at the conference. Yep, I'll be at the Graph booth all week is the uh, schedule I have, so um, come see me and make me not lonely. That sounds good. We got to see if we can pull together a community hockey game. I saw there's like three hockey rinks down in Orlando. Or golf. I've just started golf too. We could do golf. <laughs> I played golf one time when I was in Seattle a couple weeks ago. All right. We might have to do a golf thing because I'm not sure we're going to get poor in the ice rink anymore. <laughs> it might be a bit cheaper to get golf in Florida than ice. Yeah, no joke. That's probably true. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. Cool. All right, well, have a good rest right, of the guys. week, guys. I really appreciate this. Thanks, thanks. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at M365DevPodcast and check out our show notes at www.m365devpodcast.com. To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. That's all, folks. 